So this morning we looked at applying the Bible across cultures. And a few examples of this are, are more complex uh, in many churches than the subject of music. And obviously that is an extensive topic. And so what I want us to do tonight is to limit our looking at that vast topic to this one question. What should congregational singing look like? What should congregational singing look like? And to answer that question, turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Obviously, we read a larger portion of the chapter, but I want us to focus specifically on verse 16. And as we look at the context of verse 16, uh, perhaps it would be profitable at another time for us to read Colossians chapter 3 and then also compare it to Ephesians 4 and 5 because there's many similarities between those two passages in terms of what uh, God revealed through Paul to both the church at Colossae and the church at Ephesus. And even as he did in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul talks about the contrast between the old life and the new life, between putting off uh, sinful practices and putting on holy ones. And then he talks about specific actions connected with that new life in Christ. And we see that in verses 12 through 17. Now in verse 16, he's talking specifically in the context of the local church. What is it that he is saying about congregational singing? Uh, and just to clarify, my goal in looking at this is not to cover it exhaustively, but to provide a framework for us to look at this again down the road and to have further conversations about uh, music in the church. And to give proper credit where it's due, I will uh, freely admit that the points that I'm using are adapted somewhat from uh, a message that uh, my former pastor at Inner City in Allen Park did uh, back in 2007. So I will post that on the Facebook page if anyone's interested in listening to that because I think it will uh, go into some more nuances that we won't necessarily go into tonight but that would be profitable to think about. So as we look at verse 16, what do we see first? I think we see that we need to let the word flow into singing. And why do I say that? Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We note first of all that this is a command. Even though it says let us do this, the let us is parallel with uh, put on love in verse 14. Let the peace of Christ rule in verse 15. Be thankful at the end of verse 15. And verse 17, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so this is a command alongside these other commands. And Paul is saying that this is something that we must do before we sing. The word of Christ needs to be richly dwelling within us. And with respect to it being the word of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, what is the relationship between those two things? Between word and Christ? Because it's a prepositional phrase and there are different ways that those two words can be related. Sometimes it's the first word doing the action. Sometimes it's the second word as the source of the action. What is the relationship between these two words here? And I think that the word of Christ, the way it's used here, and the way that it's used in other places in Scripture, this specific phrase, is that it is both the word that comes from Christ, and then by implication, the word that is about Christ. Why is that important? Well, the word is powerful to do God's work. We see this, for example, in Romans 10 and verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. We see 
that salvation is not possible apart from the word that comes from God. Or, you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. And so that is a testimony to the gospel that is coming forth from the Thessalonian believers. This word of Christ also accomplishes our sanctification, as in Ephesians 5 and verse 26. And so the word of Christ is that which is to be within us. But it's not just that we know that there is this word, that it's of Christ, that it's sort of a distant sort of concept over here. This is something that should richly dwell within you. What does it mean for it to dwell? Well, it means for it to be at home in. If you consider similar usages, for example, in Romans 8 and verse 11, where it says, the Spirit dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, where it says, God dwells in you. And then 2 Timothy 1.14, where again it speaks of the Spirit dwelling within you. We have this concept that God is dwelling within us, with us, making His home in us. And that's not a... It's not a geographical location because God is everywhere. And yet there is a sense, and it's difficult for us to describe this, is there's a sense in which God's presence is different for his people than it is generally his presence in the world at large. And why is that the case? Because we have a relationship with God and he with us. And in the same way, that God dwells within us, His Word is to dwell within us. And I think that this is emphasized further by the parallel passage in Ephesians 5. Because what does it say there? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Here it's, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And Paul says the same thing. Singing should flow out of those two realities, that we are filled with the Spirit, obeying, following Him, aware of his presence, and that we are saturated with his word. What does it mean richly? It means abundant or overflowing. Uh, we see in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17 that uh, God blesses us richly with things to enjoy. And that's a, a correction to a desire for all sorts of things in the world. It's a correction to greed because we have a God who blesses us richly with all kinds of good blessings. God gives us His Spirit abundantly, according to Titus 3 and verse 6. And then 2 Peter verse 1 says, The entrance to heaven is abundantly open for those who are called and chosen by God and to live out and follow Him in diligence. And so when it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, it is present with us, and it's abundant, and it's overflowing. And essentially... The presence of God, the presence of His Word in our lives is supposed to spill out into singing. So what does this mean for our congregational singing? I think it means this, by way of application, the singing that we do should come out of the Word because our lives are full of the truths of Scripture. Practically speaking, this means that we look at the words of the songs that we sing and we compare them to the truths of Scripture, and we say, do they match up? Because if not, then it is difficult for us to be having the Word of Christ richly dwelling in us and then be singing things if it's not the Word of Christ. Now, I, I would clarify at this point, I'm not saying at this point we're evaluating the music, the notes, 
the composition, the elements of the song other than the words. Why? Because it is difficult, for, if not impossible, for us to assess the truth of notes in a song because um, uh, we don't have a list of acceptable notes or musical phrases in the Bible. What do we have? We have truth statements. This is God. This is man. This is things about the world. And we can compare the words of the song to those truth statements. We can't necessarily compare the individual notes. We'll get to evaluating the music and whether it's appropriate and fits with those words in a little bit. But right at this point, we're saying, let's evaluate the words. So if you would, pull out your hymn book and turn to number 298. So this song starts out and it says, All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. So the, the main portion of it is, is fairly good. There's a few phrases in it that I would be a little bit uncomfortable with, but it's fairly good. But when you come to the chorus, it says, Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood I now am saved. I would draw your attention to the second part of the first phrase of the chorus where it says, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. The reason that I draw your attention to this is that it says in uh, Romans chapter 3, that there is no one who seeks after God. It says in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And so if we look at that, I think we have to ask ourselves, is it true in salvation that we find him whom my soul so long have craved? Now, I will grant that there might be some dispute on this point for this reason. Our experience of life apart from Christ is an experience of recognizing that life isn't working and that there's something that we're missing and all that sort of thing. And if that is the sentiment that this song is capturing, then that's true at some level. My hesitation would be that when it says, I found him whom I so long, so long have craved, we look at Romans 3 and verse 10 and we say, was I really wanting God, or was I wanting all these other things in place of God? Again, I point this out not because overall this is a terrible song, but just simply to point out the fact that there are phrases in songs that we sing that we should at least be thoughtful about. Let me show you one other one from the uh, Hymns of Praise book. If you would turn to number 6. And look specifically at the chorus. It says, I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. We have a challenge here because there is a, a sense in which God the Father poured out his wrath on God the Son at the cross. 
And yet I question whether we can say that God is estranged from God, that there's a division in the Godhead. Again, I'm not saying absolutely that this song is wrong for us to sing. I just think that it's one of those things where we should pause and consider, is this true? Does this accurately reflect the text of Scripture? So my point with this is not to make you overly critical of every song that we sing, but rather as we sing them, that we should be thinking about what we're saying. Because it's easy for us to fall in the habit of saying, I know this song, I'm just going to say the words because they're popping into my head and I know them. We should consider whether the things that we are singing are true. And on one hand, I was thankful because I was looking through the hymn book, trying to find an example that was like, this is absolute heresy, just to be really clear about this point. And I didn't find any examples like that. Now, I didn't exhaustively read every song in there, but I... I read a, a bunch of them. And so I'm encouraged that overall the songs that we have in our hymnal are, are accurate, are, are true, and, and satisfy this criteria. But my point is that we should consider whether what we're singing is true. Because if the word of Christ is supposed to be dwelling in us richly, and that's then supposed to be what we're singing, we need to make sure that what we're singing is in fact the word of Christ and not uh, other ideas. Secondly, not only does the word of Christ need to dwell in us, but we also need to minister to one another with our singing. Look at verse 16 again. It says, uh, you'll notice the one another in the middle of that second phrase, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. So what are we supposed to be doing? What's our ministry toward each other supposed to be looking like as we sing? Well, Paul describes it in two ways. The first way is that it is to be with all wisdom or in all wisdom. What sort of wisdom is supposed to be uh, the context in which we are ministering to one another? Well, I think we would clearly understand that it's God's wisdom, not our own wisdom. A clear contrast of this would be in James 3. The wisdom that is from above is pure and peaceable and full of mercy and good fruit. The wisdom that is from below is, is earthly and sensual and demonic. And so the context largely in Colossians is... Christ is true wisdom from God in contrast to human wisdom, which is what uh, the Colossians were potentially being tempted to turn away from Christ and to follow. So not human wisdom, God's wisdom is the context in which we are doing this ministry. And what is the ministry? To teach and admonish one another. Teach uh, would simply be to instruct. And uh, we see this used, for example, in Colossians 1. In verse 28, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So Paul saw this specifically as a function of his ministry to the church at Colossae. And he also saw it as a ministry that they were supposed to be having toward one another. So teaching or instructing, communicating truth, but also admonishing. Admonishing kind of takes it a step further. Uh, teaching is here's the truth. Admonishing is, now are you following it? It's an emphatic encouragement. And we say, well, I don't know if I'm qualified to do that. Consider Paul's words in Romans 15 and verse 14. He said, I am persuaded that you are able to admonish one another. So there is a sense in which God not only calls us to do this, he has also given the ability through his spirit to fulfill this ministry to one another. And so, not only do we need to instruct, here's truth, 
We need to call each other to action, admonish. Are you living this out? Are you following it? Are you pleasing God in your attitude toward the truth? So we need to minister as an ongoing process. He says, teaching and admonishing one another. We also need to minister using acceptable variety. And we see this in the last part of that phrase where it says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, I will admit that there are a lot of different ideas about what psalms and hymns and spiritual songs represents. Some people will say it's just different words for the same thing. And I think that that emphasis is helpful in the sense that we can get caught up in the specific details and fail to recognize that the point is, Paul's point is, are we teaching and admonishing with all wisdom in all of the singing that we do in God's presence? I think that's the valid point from the people who would say that these are all the same thing. But on the other hand, I think it is interesting to look at how these words are used in other places in Scripture because I think that gives us some insight into why Paul used them here. Psalms, uh, I, think, I think we would have to argue Psalms are the Psalms of the Old Testament. Why do I say that? The word is used this way in Luke 20, in Luke 24, in Acts 1, and in Acts 13. These were the songs that the people of Israel used. And even as we sung them tonight, I was just reflecting on how it is helpful and valuable for us to consider the truths of the Psalms and just how richly they are saturated with truth about God, truth that calls us to confession, truth that calls us to minister to people around us, all these sorts of things. The Psalms are saturated with truth, and I think it's extremely valuable for us to use those in our, in our singing, and I think that it fulfills Paul's admonishment here as well as in the book of Ephesians. The second two words are where people tend to have more disagreement about what they mean, and largely because the specific word is only used here and in um, Ephesians. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't figure out what the word means, but it means that in some cases, if the word is used 50 times in the New Testament, we can look at all the places that it's used and we can see what's the general sense of, of the meaning of this word. When it's only used in a couple of places, it's more challenging. We see this word used, for example, in Matthew 26, verse 30, and Mark 14, 26, when Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn and go out. And uh, many would believe that they probably would have been singing a portion of one of the psalms as that hymn, because that would have been a common practice in connection with celebration of the Passover. Uh, we see the, the phrase added to the idea of hymn, that it is something of praise when we see a Paul and Silas singing these in prison in Acts 16 and verse 25. We see it connected in the context of the congregation in Hebrews 2 and verse 12. And granting that the quotation is from the Old Testament, so it is likely referring to uh, originally to the Old Testament congregation, but I think that we can also see that it would be connected with worship today in the church. So what would be a possible example of a hymn? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It says there, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
Now, we can't say absolutely that this is a hymn, but the way that it's structured, many people believe that this was at least something that the early church would have recited, if not sung, as a hymn. There are several other examples that are potentially hymns as well in the New Testament, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And so we see, I believe, examples of this kind of hymn singing, whether it be portions of the Psalms adapted for use by the church, or whether it be new compositions based on truth about Christ and other things that God had revealed. And then thirdly, spiritual songs. The same word, song, is used three times in Revelation. Twice of the new song in Revelation 5, 9 and 14, 3, and once of the song of Moses or the song of the Lamb. And it's interesting if you compare uh, the cross-references that you would typically see in Revelation with the passages in the Old Testament that they believe uh, are connected to that particular song, there's not an exact parallel in the words, but the message that is sung before the throne of God summarizes the same sort of message where Moses sings of God's victory over defeating Pharaoh in the Old Testament. And so what does that teach us? I think that there is an appropriate place for songs that are not an exact quotation of Scripture, but that accurately and clearly reflect biblical truth. So if we're going to minister to people with our songs, we need to be doing so with a goal to teach and admonish one another and using a variety that is still tied to Scripture. Because again, the first phrase, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So in connection with this point and by way of application, I think that our songs need to be clear. Why? Because it is difficult for us to teach and to admonish one another if we're saying things and we don't know what they mean. So what, how do we approach that? Sometimes it's appropriate to teach what older songs mean. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your hymn book to number seven. It might sound familiar because we just sang it here recently. One of the reasons this one stands out to me is because when uh, we would sing it in the, uh, in the junior church uh, program at our, at our former church, I would, I would try to explain this song because I would see the kids singing it and they would look at me and I could tell that there were some of the phrases that they just weren't getting. So let's look and see what are some of the phrases that might be puzzling. I think one of the phrases that stands out from this song that might be puzzling is where it says... Uh, in the second phrase, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And we look at that and we say, well, what does that mean? The picture that the songwriter is using is that our heart is like an instrument and it needs to be tuned, it needs to be adjusted. It's not always just ready to go, ready to praise God right out the gate. We have to prepare ourselves for worship. And I think that that's a helpful picture as long as we understand what it means. And then, a little bit later, it says on the third line, teach me some melodious sonnet. Well, what's a sonnet? It's not, again, not, a, not a, uh, a word that we use regularly in everyday conversation, but it would be a poetical expression of an idea. And so the, the, the hymn writer is saying, teach me something that in a poetic way expresses, even as the flaming tongues above, even as the angels do, expresses praise to you. And then the, probably even the clearer example is in verse 2, where it says, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. What is that? 
Literally, it's sign of victory. And so perhaps there's a couple of different solutions that we could have to addressing the potential confusion that we might have when looking like a song like, at a song like this. We could say, we're going to throw it out because we don't know what it means, or we can say, we're going to explain it, or we're going to potentially, in the case of something like Ebenezer, we could say, we could sing sign of victory instead of Ebenezer because it would mean the same thing. I'm not saying we have to do that, but I'm saying it would be a possibility to make sure that we are understanding what we're singing with a goal that as we sing, we are teaching and admonishing one another. And again, we need to understand what's being said. Related to being clear is whether the song can be sung by the congregation. And there are some songs that are in the hymnal here that I know that I can't sing well, and perhaps some of you struggle with them as well. So, are they bad songs? Not necessarily. But if we can't sing them well, then it's probably not most helpful for us to use those songs in our worship. Connected with this would be the fact, and, and, and we see this increasingly today, many songs are written for performance by an individual or a group. And this is true of really conservative Christian music writers. This is true of radically less conservative Christian music writers, that many of their songs are written for performance. And that's different from songs that are written for congregational singing. Because in performance, a lot of times there's, there's emphasis on how high your voice can go and how low your voice can go and, and all of these sorts of things. And it becomes less accessible for us as a congregation to sing those well, to sing them together, to sing them and, and, and all be singing it together at the same time. And so I think that it requires wisdom in looking at the songs that are available and picking out songs that clearly communicate truth, either explaining what they mean if it's unclear, or mixing in also songs that say the same truths in language that is more familiar and easier to understand for us, and then also making sure that the songs are accessible for us to be able to sing together well. So not every song must be a psalm, but it must accurately reflect the truth, and it needs to do so in a way that ministers to those who hear it. But I think we have to recognize we're not just singing about Scripture or Scripture itself. We're not just singing to one another. We're also singing in the presence of God. And that's where the last phrase comes in, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And there's a discussion of whether the to God modifies the singing or whether it modifies the thankfulness in your hearts. But obviously, even if, the, um, even if it modifies thankfulness in your hearts to God, that it's the thankfulness that's to God, clearly God is the recipient of our worship. We know that from a variety of other passages in Scripture. And so we need to consider... How are we coming before God's presence? From this specific passage, I think we can at least say that we need to be speaking out of grace. Now, why do I say grace when the word is thankfulness? Because the word is literally grace. Singing in grace in your hearts to God. And we say, well, why did they put thankfulness? And I think they put it for this reason. Grace is God's kindness to us. What does grace and God's kindness to us inevitably result if we have any understanding of what it means. It produces gratitude, thankfulness to God. And so, we then sing with grace that spills over into thankfulness. Furthermore, it is 
in your hearts. It's, it, it's from your hearts. And, and why is this important? Sometimes we, sometimes we draw a, a harsh distinction and say, well, why, why didn't he say, with your mouths? Well, because all throughout the New Testament, didn't Jesus make the point that what's in your heart spills out from your mouth? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And going back to the first part of it, if the word of Christ is richly dwelling in us, that's going to spill out our mouths from our hearts, and it's going to express a proper attitude toward God in recognition of His kindness, His grace to us. And so what's in our hearts? Is it spilling out into a proper worship of God? And so, in terms of application of this phrase, if the first one had to do with making sure that what we're singing is true, and the second one had to do with making sure that what we're singing is clear, I think the point of this last phrase would be that our, our singing is reverent. Because if we are singing in the presence of God, if we are singing in the context of the grace that He has expressed to us, then we need to make sure that our songs match up with those ideas. And this is, a, this is a difficult point. Why? Because you see, for example, in the Old Testament, severe warnings against improper worship of God. What happened to Korah and his entire family and his relatives and the other priests that were with him when he offered incense to God in the wrong way? The earth opened up and they were swallowed up. What happened to Uzzah when he puts his hand out and touches the Ark of the Covenant because he's worried it's going to fall off the cart? When it's coming back from the Philistines, God strikes him dead. Those two examples alone should cause us to pause and consider how we come into God's presence. And yet we have to also, at the same time, acknowledge the truth that if Christ has opened a way of access to us, for us, to God, that we can have a relationship with God and come before Him in prayer, many of which our songs are written as prayers to God, we can come before God in, a, in the context of our relationship with Him. And so we have to balance these two ideas. Because God is holy and concerned about how He is worshipped, we ought to be very careful about how we come into His presence. Not carelessly, not thoughtlessly, not irreverently. But on the other hand, because He is our God and our Father, and we have a relationship with Him through Christ, we come before Him in the context of that relationship. And this is the challenging point here, because I think this is where we come in and we have to say, not just the words, but also the music. Is it fitting and reverent and appropriate for church? And this is difficult, because people have come up with all sorts of different criteria for evaluating music. A simple criteria, or a, just a straightforward criteria, would be, is it simple or is it complex? Is it just a few notes on the page, or are there tons and tons of notes going all sorts of different directions? You open up the hymnal, and you look at some of them, they're very complex. You look at other songs, and you can see, even if you don't read a lot of music, that they're fairly straightforward. So that's one way that we could evaluate it. Probably not the most helpful way, but it is one way that we could evaluate it. We could also, for example, look at the emotion that the song seems to express to us, or the apparent result that it produces. Particularly, those last two are also challenging because to a certain extent, the emotion that a song conveys to us or the effect that it produces is tied to a variety of experiences in our lives. That's not to say that music... We can never say that music doesn't communicate, or to put that more clearly, music always communicates. But what it communicates 
is complicated based on a variety of factors. So for example, if our attitude is that emotions are sinful or at least untrustworthy, then if a song stirs our emo emotions, we're going to be suspicious of it. Or, on the other hand, if we have often heard that, for example, classical music is good and other types of music are bad, then we may look at one type of music and accept it uncritically. And I would submit to you that there are examples of classical music that are bad or at least not helpful for use in the church just as much as there are a whole lot of other kinds of music that aren't helpful in the church. Related to this point, by way of application, does the music support or undermine the words? For example, some songs are very upbeat. And for me, at least, it's very jarring if we're singing something about the death of Christ, but the song is very upbeat and kind of has a happy feel to it. Because this is something that I would think would, would be sobering. It'd be something that we would want to maybe sing a little bit more slowly and reflect on. Now, if it's the context of the death of Christ and the forgiveness that we have and some of that, there, there is joy connected with that as well. So there's a little bit of wisdom involved in this. But I think at this level, we're asking primarily, not just is this right or wrong, but is this the, does this fit with the words that we're singing? So on the one hand, we have sobriety with certain truths. On the other hand, we're to express joy in singing. Just read the Psalms over and over again. You see how many times the word joy is used in the Psalms. And obviously they were for Israel, but I think there's a place for us as well in connection with the Psalms. So I think that we should have a mix of both sober and joyful songs. So let me give you a couple of examples. Turn to number six in your hymnal. Number six says, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. So we look at this, and uh, you probably have the music in your head, at least to some extent, when we, when we read the words to this song. What is the tone or the emotion or the attitude of that song? It's joy. It's praise to God. Now turn over to number 241. And in the same way that there is, I think, a place where sometimes we might sing a little bit faster, we might, um, we might even have our hearts stirred a little bit as we're singing a particular song of praise to God, our hearts can be stirred in a different way when we sing and look at a song like, O sacred head now wounded. O sacred head now wounded with grief, and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. Now, this is not one that we sing as often, perhaps, at least in many churches, and yet the tone of the music fits very well with the words. It's, it's somber, it's sober, it's slower. It helps us to pause and reflect on the truth of the song. So what's my point in drawing the contrast between these two songs? There is a place for singing faster and, 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 and feeling a different sort of emotions connected with the song that we're singing. There's also a place for singing more slowly, more reflectively, and having a more serious and sober attitude as we reflect on the words of the song that we are singing. 
And so we see that the, the word of Christ richly dwells within us, that we're ministering to one another as we sing, and that we are singing in God's presence, and so we should do so with a proper attitude. And let me just throw these things in here. These are by way of application. These are not directly drawn from the text, just some observations that I think are helpful for us to think about. The first one, or the first concern, that sometimes people have with songs that we might do in addition to these songs, perhaps some of the ones that we have in hymns of praise or some that we might add down the road, would be this. They'd say, well, this song has repetition in it. I remember this being a, a common criticism of some newer congregational songs when, uh, particularly I was younger, that, that it has too much repetition in it. My response to that would be this. Read Psalm 136. And notice how many times the phrase, and his loving kindness endures forever, his mercy endures forever, depending on the translation you're using, is repeated in that song. The problem, I think, with repetition is not repetition itself, because that can aid in memory and emphasis and those sorts of things. The problem with repetition is that when it becomes just sort of a mindless thing that we're just doing without thinking about it. And that can be true singing this, or singing a song that was written 10 years ago, or whatever it might be. And so we need to be sure or clear that the specific uh, concern is a valid one and that the thing that we're guarding our hearts against is sort of an apathy to worship. A second concern that sometimes arises is the idea of familiarity with God. And this was a common criticism of music that was written in the last 50 years, that it seems too familiar with God. My response to this would be to consider what Psalm 63 says. For example, and we don't have to read it now, but I would encourage you to look at it later, it only mentions the name of God three times in that psalm. And in some ways, it speaks of God with a level of familiarity that we might not be comfortable with. And we often see this in some of the psalms, that David seems to come perhaps too boldly before God in some of the things that he says. And I think we have to be cautious in, in light of the idea of reverence. And yet, I think there is an appropriate affection and closeness that we can express to God. Now, I understand this concern because I remember when we were doing a vacation Bible school, I went on a ministry trip with some other teenagers from my church and our youth pastor, and some of them said, well, let's use this particular song. And it was a song that was very, very shallow and, and, and not specifically Christian. And so I think that we should be cautious of those kinds of songs. But I think that the issue of familiarity with God can be properly exercised as long as we're careful about it. And then one third concern here is the idea of simplicity. Sometimes we look down on simple songs. And sometimes that's because there's been kind of a, an emphasis on, on uh, uh, songs have to be really formal, really complex, you need to have uh, you know, 50 people in an orchestra to perform these songs to be really pleasing to God, to be really good music. But the reality is that if you look at something like Psalm 117, it's two verses, it's simple phrasing, and it expresses truth about God. And so I would caution us against a sort of, of uh, attitude that would look down on songs merely because they're simple. As long as they're expressing truth, and as long as it's not the only thing that we sing, I think that it's very appropriate for us to come before God with simple truth and reflect on it 
and to value, value it and benefit from it. So our singing as a church should be spilling out of hearts that are full to overflowing with the truth of Scripture. And I see this, I think, when I look in the New Testament, and, and sometimes we look at the New Testament, we try to puzzle out how does the New Testament use the Old Testament, and I think sometimes it's difficult for us to think about that is because the New Testament authors, their minds are so saturated with Scripture that they're writing something in one of their letters or in one of their accounts, and it's almost like they, they break into a quotation from the Old Testament because they're like, this thing that God is doing here now reminds me of this thing that God did in Israel. And this truth about God reminds me of this truth that He revealed about Himself in the past. That's, I think, what's supposed to be going on in our hearts and lives. We're so saturated by Scripture that it can't help but spill out of us. And when it spills out of us, that's not like us over by ourselves. That's teaching and admonishing one another. And so when we come and we gather and we sing songs, do you think about the fact that what you're singing may be what the person next to you needs to hear to encourage their hearts, to challenge them about some area of sinfulness, whatever it might be, that God can use music in connection with truth from Scripture to teach and to admonish us. And then finally, when we come into the service, do we come with an attitude where we say, I'm coming to worship God, and so I make sure that I'm coming to worship God in a proper way. God is my God. He's my Father. I have a relationship with Him. But God is holy. And so I don't just come casually into His presence. And so may God help us to sing in a way that is reverent to God and gratitude for the grace that He's given to us, that's teaching and admonishing one another, and that is saturated with truth from the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we sing to sing in ways that honor you. Lord, so many times it's easy for us to, uh, to get caught up in connection with singing with what we like or what feels good to us or uh, on the other hand, moving away from certain things because we're not sure of them. But Lord, help us to be anchoring our attitude toward our singing, anchoring our uh, approach to singing in truth from your word, Lord, that we would just be controlled by your word, that we would be encouraging one another, and that, Lord, you would be honored by the way that we sing. We pray that you would help us to do that well this week. We pray this even now in Christ's name. Amen.